Thank you, Pip. Um, so I'm going to talk about, as Pip says, early English books online text creation partnership, um, looking at how uh, we used uh, the TIDSR toolkit, which Catherine and Eric uh, would have spoken to you about in the last session. So first of all, what is Evo TCP? We create XML encoded searchable editions of early printed books, um, working with uh, ProQuest, who's a commercial publisher, and they have our main interface. Um, they have image sets which were taken originally from microfilm um, and they're now digital images uh, which are available online to subscribing institutions and we create uh, transcribed and encoded XML editions of those and we then make them available through ProQuest's website. We also have um, uh, local implementations at Michigan and Oxford, so the main partners of the TCP are the Universities of Oxford and Michigan. Um, and we also, through JISC, JISC Historic Books also um, allow access to our texts. Now we've been, Evo TCP began in 1999, so we've been going for quite a long time. And it's become a very central resource for the early modern period. People use it a lot, students use it a lot. Um, and because we've been going so long, we've been doing things in the same way for so long, we felt it was a good uh, idea to step back and look in detail at the impact of our resource and about how it's received by the community. Um, JISC uh, have a sustainability um, strand that is uh, intended to look at how we can make digital resources sustainable long term. And we were funded for the SEC project, which is sustaining the Evo TCP corpus in transition. Um, the transition being it, some of the material will go into the public domain, so we're looking at how that transition can be made. Um, so we were funded on that strand by JISC to do an 18-month study. And it was uh, divided into three stages, a benchmarking study, a period of reflection and planning, and then a sort of post-enhancement phase, which is about what, what shall we do, how shall we do it, what have we already done. And we used the TIDSR toolkit to do that. I worked with Eric Meyer, who you just heard from. So we partnered with Eric at the OII. Um, and we used a mixture of quantitative and qualitative um, methods of analysis. Um, Eric did most of the quantitative stuff, the analytics and bibliometrics and so on, and I did more of the um, qualitative stuff, so I had held three focus groups. We had a conference, an EgoTCB conference, which we thought went really well. It worked very well. We got lots of feedback from our users, uh, in interviews with lots of um, digital specialists and um, early modern academics, students, um, librarians, and lots of email correspondence with people who, who I couldn't get to see individually. And we published the um, report based on that. That's the, the URL there. Hopefully you can see um, the detail of how we went about that. One of the uh, big aspects of it was the user survey, an online user survey, um, which we sent around to early modern departments, digital humanities groups, things like that. And we got a good response. We got over 200 responses, which we thought was quite good. Um, I did in incentivize it by offering Amazon vouchers, an Amazon voucher draw for people to get involved and I think that helped. <laughs> More people responded than we might have expected. Um, so a lot of what I'll show you today is based on the user survey results and kind of what we assumed from that. And we used the TIDSR study to then develop um, planning for the future, what we should do in terms of our profile, the needs of our users, how we should develop the resource in the future as a way of identifying strands of work and thinking about how which bids could come off of this work, what do we need more money to do, what do we need to develop. So this was the tool that we used, uh, the, the TIDSR tool. 
this is basically a sort of summary of the main things that, that, we, that came out of it. How do we improve the sustainability of EBO TCP? Um, and basically we want to preserve our data set, but clearly that's not enough. Um, so we have to think about not just sustaining the output of the project, the text themselves, but also about the expertise of the project personnel who, who have um, worked on it for so many years. Um, improve the awareness of the resource among the user community, meet their needs and desires and what they would like the resource to be, um, make the data easily available in multiple formats with easily accessible documentation and metadata and alongside that user and teaching guides which would help people to understand the resource once the production phase has ended when there might not be project personnel around to field queries and so on. Make citation easy, develop relationships with other projects, develop funding bids to improve or enhance the corpus. So we came up with a sort of series, a, a list basically of this is what we should be doing and I'll show you a few of those, I won't, we won't have time to go into all of these in detail but I'll show you some of the the ways that we took the TIDSR data and how we then applied it. So one of the questions we asked was how aware are you of other resources? So other resources that are similar to EBO. So we have ECHO, British History Online, Jonathan works for Literature Online, Internet Shakespeare Editions, just historic books and Brown University's Women Writers. So we wanted to know are there other uh, resources that they use frequently, how could, might we be able to see where we are in the landscape of digital resources in this field and also how we fit in with mm -hmm. other resources where you can download electronic texts like Google Books which lots of people at least know about even if they don't use it, Internet Archive again, Project Gutenberg which people have heard of may not use very much and then other ones which are don't seem to have much of a profile in the UK like the Hathi Trust and Gallica which is French and Europeana, which again is European books. So it gave us a sense of the spread of our users and what kind of other resources they use and how we fit in. So it was clear, admittedly, this was a self-selecting sample. We sent it to people who we thought would know about EBO and who would know about EBO TCP and who chose to fill in our survey. So we would assume that they would, you know, we've got 69% of our respondents used it regularly, but it was an EBO TCP survey. So we would hope that they would. Um, so it's, it's slightly distorted, but it's interesting to see which other resources are commonly used and ECHO and British History Online uh, were the main ones. However, even though they were regular users, 69% of them were regular users, only a very, what we felt was not really, you know, even amongst our, our top users, only 50% of them knew what EBO TCP was. Um, they didn't know who created the full text on the website. They, they thought that ProQuest, the publisher who have the image resource, also produced the full text. So they don't know about who we are, what we do. Um, they might have heard the name, 14% said they'd heard of EBOTCP, but didn't know what, what we did. So from that result, we needed to improve our profile. We tried to raise awareness of what EBOTCP does in order to, to make the case that, you know, people know about us, they are interested in our work and they know who to go to if they have a problem and who, who's responsible for these texts. So what we've tried to do recently is um, improve our profile on Twitter. I'm sure that um, Eric and Catherine have spoken about sort of social media role. So we've been trying to tweet more, retweet more stuff, trying to build a sense of sort of 
community amongst other similar projects and users. Um, and to tweet about more things. We used to tweet very infrequently about quite dull things, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so trying to tweet more interesting stuff, more variety, and retweeting colleagues and connections that we feel that we'd like to kind of build a reciprocal relationship. So if we tweet them, they'll tweet us, basically. We also have a, a blog for the current project, trying to get guest bloggers to come on and, and uh, write about issues that have come up. Jonathan's done one. Eric is going to do one <laughs> when I can get hold of him. Um, so trying to get some different people to, to raise the profile via the blog. But mainly, we're trying to do more outreach events. So we had a conference last year, which was very successful. And we've decided to hold another conference um, this year with a view to fostering a sense of community and potential collaboration and trying to, to have a kind of network of people with shared interests that we can then have, a, have people, you know, oh, I'm interested in this, so am I, and try and build partnerships, build new uh, potential projects as a way to sustain the pro both the project and the project personnel. Because if we can find offshoots of this project, we're still working on the data. We can still be around for users to be able to ask questions or ask for our techs or develop new projects. So that is the idea um, in terms of profile. What do users want was something that we wanted to know in which the survey and, and, and uh, all of the methods basically told us what users want. And of course, users want as much as they can get. They want everything and as much of it as possible. Um, so what do users want that we can realistically uh, provide? They want better quality text, better quality transcriptions. They want a more text completeness of coverage. They want links to other resources that they use. So the early short, um, short title, English short title catalog is something that's very central to early modern studies. They want to be able to link to that from our resource. They want to be able to get to our text and get it in lots of different formats. They want EPUBs, XML, plain text. They want it in the format that they are interested in. They, of course, want everything to be free and open. Um, and so do we, but ProQuest, the publisher, aren't quite so keen. <laughs> um, but we can always say, well, you know that the user community wants to be free. And some people want richer tagging. They want more detailed XML tagging. So from this, we can look at, well, we know what users want. We know the kind of resources that, that users also use. And we know that by fostering a sense of community, we can then try and build bids or build new directions for the project based on what users want. So as an, an example of this, number one thing that our users want is better quality transcriptions. So from that, we are now partnering in a bid that's going into AHRC Digital Transformations that's called Textual Genomics and it's led by Sussex University. I won't go into what it is because it's very complicated, but within it, there would be crowdsourcing corrections to the EBO TCP data, which would be Bodlin's, the, the um, Oxford role, the EBO TCP role. So even though that's not strictly speaking our bid, we've still been able to see, well, this is something we know our users want and we can justify this as a way of moving forward. We can go into something that's crowdsourcing corrections as a way of improving our data. It's also very current and it's cheap, um, especially if you get funding to do it. Um, so in that sense, you know, you're getting the user community involved and it's a way of connecting with your user community. It ticks a lot of boxes. So hopefully we'll hear fairly soon whether that's successful or not, but it's at least a way of uh, 
showing that we're acting on what our users want. Um, at the level of encoding and metadata, which some of you might be interested in, um, our texts are in TEI, uh, but they were not in TEI P5, which is the latest version of P5. So looking at, at absolutely at the textual data, we were able to say, well, we need to get this up to modern levels, we need to get it up to scratch. And there is an article there with um, Sebastian Ratz and James Cummings about how that process would work and how you would bring them back in. Users want metadata, we can provide them with metadata. Lots of people want shelf mark data, so we've gone to ProQuest and they're going to hopefully provide that. And they want links to the ESTC and they're definitely going to provide that. So we've taken very specific stuff, as well as this more general stuff, well, we'll try and generate a bid for that. We've taken very specific feedback that was brought to our attention by the TIDSER study and acted on that directly. Um, again, access in multiple formats. We're thinking internally in Oxford, so we've made partnerships externally with other universities, but internally in Oxford we're looking at the Oxford Text Archive might this form a vehicle for our texts. How would we develop that? So there's internal work also generated from having done an impact study. Uh, another big theme which I imagine Eric and Catherine mentioned was the question of digital citation, and Jonathan's going to talk uh, about that too. We found that lots of people do cite our stuff, but not enough people cite the fact that they've used Evo TCP because there are print versions. These are images, full text based on images of actual printed books. And often people just cite the printed book. They cite the, uh, just a basic bibliographical reference with no URL, no indication that they've used an electronic resource. And this is, is difficult because it's hard for digital resources to show impact if there's not evidence of them being cited. We asked how researchers cite materials in their own research and also how do um, teaching academics teach their students to cite and as you can see from the results at the top there, um, quite a lot of people um, only cite print, 34% only cite print in their um, own research and 25% teach their students not to cite digital resources within the, the rest of the people who do cite the online version, print and URL or other, there's a lot of variation. So people aren't doing it in a consistent way. It's not being taught in a consistent way. And we've been trying to, uh, sort of again, form a group of people who are interested in this question with Eric and Catherine and um, Jonathan and people who care about this issue to try and raise awareness of it. And basically, the number one thing to do is talk about it. Because if you don't, if, if no one is if it's not brought to anyone's attention, they're not going to think about it. So it's really a question of just constantly talking about it, it feels like. Talk about it as much as possible so people can't ignore it anymore. Um, so that's what we're doing. There were some specific recommendations for EBO TCP, but generally it's about making people aware of this as an issue. Again, documentation. How should we use our documentation? How should we distribute it? We used the TIDSER study to figure out how do people hear about our resource? And how do they prefer to learn about resources? And we found that often it's about people learn from their graduate tutors or from their lecturers or from their peers. And they prefer to learn about it just by exploring it themselves. They don't really want to go to um, library training sessions. No one goes to library training sessions. <laughs> um, people prefer to learn about it themselves or via their course. 
So this told us, well, if we're going to target documentation, we target it at academics who then build it into their teaching and their students then get the kind of information that we want them to get. So we, it helped us identify our targets for some of our information. Again, another aspect of this work that has developed now is that we're interested also in how you generate interest in the public. This was very much a scholarly community who used our resource, but we started to think, actually, how do we engage with the public themselves? Well, how do we measure wider impact? And how can the Bodleian, who are partners in the TCP initiative, how can we best reach a general audience for what we're calling our online cultural heritage? So we have all of this material that people in the wider public are interested in. How do we actually get to them? Do we need to think more about impact in terms of uh, a general audience? And finally, a plug for our conference. <laughs> this is born out of the TEDSER study in the sense that we wanted to, as I say, foster a kind of collaborative environment, share ideas, generate possible uh, new lines of inquiry, new collaborations. Um, so if you want to, this is the URL for our conference, but kind of gives you an idea of the kind of mix of people that we tried to get involved. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Hand it over to you. Okay. So you might think that the uh, title I've given my talk this afternoon is a bit presumptuous. Um, who am I to say what a successful digital resource is? So I'll say first of all that if British History Online is successful, then that will be largely because of decisions taken before I worked there, so I'm not responsible for them. Uh, here's our homepage. And secondly, um, that there is an element of luck in the success that the site has had, and that's going to be one of the themes of my talk this afternoon, luck and the allied idea that you can only have limited uh, control over the impact that you, your resource has. I should also say that we've tried a few things that haven't worked, and I'll come back to a couple of those later. So one of my main recommendations today would be, if you have a digital resource, try lots of things, and some of them might work. Uh, we've been going for 10 years. We are celebrating our anniversary this summer with a Flickr competition. So if you have uh, photos of old buildings in Britain you'd like to add to our group on Flickr, then please do so. Um, 10 years is quite uh, successful, I think, in terms of longevity for a digital resource, because we've been adding, actively adding content for all of that time. Um, Here's a stats page from our site to show you our kind of page views. So these add up to something over 15 million page impressions a year. Um, and 50,000 people have signed up for our free user account, which um, does help us with things like Judith was talking about survey responses. There's a little checkbox you can, you can check when you sign up which means we can contact you for surveys and things. So we regularly get over a 1,000 uh, responses to our surveys. Um, <laughs> uh, that's very useful. It's a useful constituency to have. And they also will, people will also sign up for further surveys if you ask them at the end. So that's also a nice pool of people that are actually quite engaged that we can tap into. And so this means we're financially uh, self-sustaining in terms of keeping the site going, uh, in terms of infrastructure and things like that, and in terms of staff time. But what we don't generate is the income which would allow us to digitise more content from that because we use the same expensive method that Evo TCP uses, uh, which is that we have all of our text re-keyed by uh, individuals. 
which is the expensive but good way to do it. Um, it. But that does mean that because of the quality of the site and the number of page views we get on the site, that some people are willing to pay us to digitize their content and add it uh, to, to, to British History Online. So I've just finished um, digitizing the complete set of the uh, Royal Commission on Historic Monuments of England series. That's uh, owned by English Heritage. It's about 43 volumes. And we also digitized their Survey of London series for them. This one's an ongoing series, a really detailed architectural series uh, on the history of London. This is uh, the old London water, Waterworks building in uh, Rosebury Avenue. Has lots of, the modern editions have uh, nice colour photos, but it's been going since, I think, about 1900, and we have over 70 volumes uh, that they've paid for us to digitise and put on BHO. And they pay for that because they have to show impact and public engagement to their funders, which is the government. So uh, everybody wins out of this uh, situation. We get free content. And uh, they, they get to show greater public engagement on a very high-profile website. And best of all, it's a genuine public good because we're making these rather rare and little-known volumes on the architecture of England. Here's a shot from the Oxford, City of Oxford volume. Um, available for free around the world. This one is... Uh, I don't know. Does anyone know if Stone's Arm House is still, still in St Clement's? Yeah. Uh, so this, this volume was done in about 1933, I think, so some things have been knocked down since... Uh, which is one of the reasons why they uh, started the series, for preservation. And so I'm sure you'll talk lots this week about collaboration, and this is a good example of how it can work really well. We generate money from various uh, streams. We have institutional subscriptions, which is normally university libraries and some museums around the world. Uh, most of the site is completely free, but we do have a, it's about a quarter of the site, which is the really hardcore historical material. I'm thinking of things like medieval uh, roles in Latin and things like that, uh, part of our subscription service. And we also sell uh, individual subscriptions, which was something of, uh, we always, we always plan in the business plan to be a small revenue stream, but actually we get a lot more of those individual subscribers than uh, we expected. So that's actually done very well for us. I was talking to someone at the OED recently, and they said they don't, at that point anyway, they don't sell individual subs. And I was trying to say that's a really um, short-sighted way of looking at it, because you never know what you'll get. Uh, you already have a subscription model set up, why not let uh, individuals subscribe? Um, and because of our, our high number of page impressions, we also generate quite a lot of money through advertisements, which we do through Google AdWords. And the last source of funding which enabled us to do the TIDSA toolkit which you've already heard about is that we apply for funding from um, the funding councils. Another thing I want to say about uh, measuring the impact of a successful resource or of an unsuccessful resource I think is that you can only have limited knowledge about what that impact is. I'll come back to this briefly but believing we can only have limited knowledge doesn't mean that you shouldn't try and the TIDSA toolkit um, is one way of doing that. We used that toolkit in uh, 2010 and 11, so on a different uh, funding strand from the one that Judith did it on. If anyone's interested in our reports, I can give you the URLs to those um, to see what we did. But I think, in a sense, uh, using the toolkit would be useful even if there were no tools in the toolkit, because it actually makes you stop and think about what you're doing, about your impact. And if you're given money from a funding council as well as Judith was too, it gives you the time and space 
just a step back from uh, adding content all the time to thinking about why are you doing this, how are you reaching people, what do they think of it, what works and what doesn't work. And to be honest, we've, we've had a few ideas of what we can do, which we came up with during the, uh, the process of doing the toolkit, which we haven't actually had, had time to implement because when that period was over, we were kind of back to the bad rush of adding more and more content to BHO. Now clearly the um, million, million plus page impressions that we get every month that I mentioned are not all professional historians. Uh, we actually get about over 250,000 unique visitors a month. And a high percentage of our page views come from search, directly from search, mostly Google but other search uh, providers as well. And this is one of the lucky aspects, I promise I'll talk about luck. This is one of the lucky aspects of British History Online, which is that our subject matter is right in the sweet spot of what people are interested in. So people all around the world are interested in local history, and people all around the world are really interested in family history. So we get lots of people from the UK, also from the US, Australia, lots of other places, who are researching their ancestors and where their ancestors came from. So people in America find out that their uh, great-great-grandfather came from a village in Somerset, and we happen to have the authoritative parish-by-parish -parish history of Somerset uh, online for free. So we have a lot of names in our material, as well as lots of local history. And none of this was planned as link baits, but it just has turned out to generate lots and lots of traffic. And Google's ranking algorithms help us with that. If you search British history uh, on Google, you probably get a very high hit, very high ranking for British history online. Now that's for a number of things, but I think one of the key things is that we have an ac.uk domain name, and Google gives very uh, high prominence to that. But if you're relying on Google for, um, for your income, which we are, you have to be careful because uh, last year we had a sudden dip in our, in our referrals to the site and our income from ads and everything else fell. And that was because Google had slightly tweaked their algorithm about a spring last year. And we came about eighth on the, on the Google main page instead of first. And that really saw a dip in our income. We, of course, we have no control over that. And actually they realized, I don't think, that they had not quite got it right. They tweaked it again and we came back to the top and everything was okay, but it does just show that uh, if you're relying on search engine traffic, you, you know, you're, it's in somebody else's hands. <coughs> so if our digital resource happened to be about um, Etruscan inscriptions or um, Russian biochemists or early English laws, whatever we did, we couldn't possibly generate that kind of traffic and that kind of income, that kind of broad spe spectrum income and impact, which doesn't mean, and I'm sure Eric and Catherine said this earlier, that the smallest traffic sites can't have important impact in their own field because they can. And in fact, uh, although we haven't done the Etruscan inscriptions or the organic chemists, the IHR has been involved in a project on early English laws. This is all the laws uh, from up to the Magna Carta. So this is a very nice site. We worked on this with King's College London. So you have the, the Latin uh, transcription of the law on the left. Here, this on the right is a commentary, and you can toggle both of these. So now I've toggled to having the translation of the Latin on the right-hand side, and of course you get great manuscript images which you can zoom right in on on these. And this is an excellent resource, um, and it's going to be really important for beginning legal scholars over the next 50 years because it gives them the chance to do an edition of a, a legal work in a way which is far far lower cost than any print edition would be. But those things are hard to quantify now, and they'll probably be hard to quantify in, in 50 years' time. 
So the impact of this uh, is just an unknown, I think. And also hard to impact, uh, to, sorry, also hard to uh, measure is the impact we're having outside of the academy. When I first started on BHO, uh, as the new one, I was given the job of replying to the feedback. And uh, we get lots of people using uh, BHO who don't really know much about history. So we get loads and loads of specific historical questions, um, like how can I find out who lived in this house in 1920 and so on. We get so many of those that we've actually got a button on our, uh, on our feedback interface that sends an automatic email saying, I'm sorry, we can't help with individual research <laughs> project. Um, but still we get the uh, emails coming through, and I thought this wasn't a very helpful way to reply to the public, so when I started doing the feedback, I tried to always reply and say, we can't help, but why don't we try here? So I could try your local record office, the DNA, art museum, art gallery and library, um, the national archives, anywhere I could think of that might be relevant, just to give them somewhere else to go. So I must have written about a thousand of these emails over the last five years or so, but I'll never know how many people actually went on from there and uh, made another step in their research they wouldn't have done if I hadn't replied that way. So it's simply an unknown. Now I promise as well to talk about things that didn't work, uh, and that relates to the questions that we get coming in. We get, uh, we get lots of um, expert users on BHO, but the majority of users are inexpert who come in from search, don't really know even what they're using. So we thought we would try and match the two up, we'd try and have a kind of community where people would ask questions and expert users would answer the questions. Um, and this would be a great example of knowledge exchange if it worked. Uh, so here's an example of how it could work. Someone asking about uh, regnal dates, a very common thing that we have in our data, and someone answering in an exemplary way, telling you what it means, but also generally how to find out more information in the conversion table. But we unfortunately, we get very few of these. I, I guess over the last two or three years of doing these, we've had about 20 that have been exactly what we wanted. Most of the things that come in are things like, how do I subscribe, when we've already said on our, you know, our form, please don't ask about subscription questions here. And also, very specific historical questions, like, does anyone know my great-great-grandfather who went to America in 1880? So we just can't, um, we can't, we can't put those up, because they don't help anybody more generally to learn how to use the resource. So this hasn't been a great success, and I don't think my boss was saying to me last week, well, whose fault is this? And I was saying, I just don't think it's anybody's fault. We tried it, it didn't quite work. Um, you know, these things happen. Um, another thing that didn't work out, and again, he asked me whose fault is this, uh, <laughs> was uh, we held a conference for local record societies a few years ago. Uh, a few years ago, the, uh, the Charity Commission tightened up on its regulations on who has charitable status, and they demanded that you show public engagement. And we thought, well, these record societies have all got these transactions and whatever kind of publications they have. They could pay us to put them on British History Online. So we got them all along to a conference. Uh, we talked to them about the importance of digitization, the importance of the rekeying method I just showed you. And then we thought we'd wait and see who kind of, because some of them do have quite deep pockets, who will come up with some money to digitize their records with British History Online. And the answer was nobody. So that was a complete failure. <laughs> Um, I promise I didn't want, I wouldn't talk much about uh, TIDSA, and, uh, but Judith said that I was going to talk about digital citation, so I'll just say <laughs> that we found also very few people are citing British history online. Um, and we know that partly because people write in and get very cross because they can't use British history online to cite the print book that British history online is based on. Um, so to put that quite clearly, what they want to do is not have to look at the thing they want to cite 
In other words, they want to uh, cite the print book, but they don't want the trouble of looking at the print book. They want to ignore and cut us out of the whole, uh, cut us out of the loop, really. And in terms of impact, that's obviously a very difficult situation for us. Some researchers, and we don't know how many, are using BHO and then not citing it. And so when we try and show our impact to the community, we struggle. And the problem is a general one with citation culture at the moment, which is it's just not a transparent process. People don't think it's in any way wrong to convert the, the source they use for their research to a source they didn't use for their research because it's print. And then following on from that, my colleague uh, has just completed another impact and sustainability uh, project which relates to BHO. He did all the usual things, surveys, focus groups, and lots of stats gathering. And one thing he asked about was uh, what journeys using British History Online had saved people where they would have gone to a library. And he found that an average of 3.5 hours travel time per user per year was saved by using BHO. And because he asked how people travel to the library, he was then able to calculate a saving of 1.9 uh, kilograms of carbon dioxide and £13.76 in fares and fuel. Um, now, because we have such a, a large user group, that scales up. So taking only UK users, track, which were who are educated to HE level, Bruce calculates savings of uh, direct costs of £366,000 a year, 92,000 hours of travel, and 29 tonnes of carbon dioxide. And I should emphasise he's been really conservative in the way that he calculated these statistics. Um, and these are things that are not usually directly associated with impact, but they do have an important impact on society. Mm. Now that report, which Bruce just finished last week, is not yet on our institutional repository, but if anybody's interested, when it's up in a few weeks, I'm happy to send you a URL, so just drop me a line and I'll send you a copy of that. Am I okay for time? Okay. This is another project I've been involved with and which uh, British History Online is part of, Connected Histories. This brings together multiple historical sources for the UK. And at the last count, I believe it had over 10 billion words in it, which is, um, I was quite surprised when I read that. There's a great, it's a great resource, but it has the opposite effect of British History Online in terms of search engine and link traffic. Because what we have here it's just a front end. This sits in our offices in London. And if you enter a query to any of these 25-odd uh, resources, then the query is sent to Sheffield, where it's looked up in the indexes, and the reply, reply query is sent back. So all this is a front end. So there's nothing there for you to find via Google, apart from the words connected in histories. That's really it. So we're, we're having trouble, because it's a great resource, but there's just a technical barrier to people finding it or even knowing it exists. Um, just paid for us to do all this work, connecting up these things. So um, in May, the press officer asked the IHR to come up with a load of stories about royal births in Connected Histories uh, for the expected uh, royal birth in July. And my boss very gleefully gave me this, this job to do to find uh, Connected because he knew there were two things I least like, uh, babies and royal families. Um, but it was instructive using Connected Histories again, just how much and how rich and varied the resources are. I was very glad I could find this uh, image of a queen and a bawling baby from uh, the British Museum's online database, for example. And this has gone into the press release, along with lots of other things which um, really show the range. But I can see already we're competing with uh, other people with all their slideshows about royal births. There's one on the BBC at the moment, for example, so who knows whether this will make it through. And the great thing about this is it really does deepen people's knowledge of what's available, because 
they can search on something and then find there are lots of other related databases that they never knew even existed, like the clergy of the Church of England database or the, the convict transportation databases and so on. Uh, this could have a great impact on public at large, but at present, I'm afraid, it's just not being found by public at large. I don't know how many people here are old enough to remember this book, which came out in 1987. Um, and just going back to my theme of luck, it came out in 1987, uh, and it became a big hit two years later when, of course, one of the two great powers of the time, uh, what Paul Kennedy calls the bipolar world, completely collapsed very suddenly. And uh, you used to see people everywhere reading the rise and fall of the great powers and stroking their chins and thinking about the deep tectonic plates of history. Um, so its impact, its, its kind of bestseller quality, was actually more related to the timing of the book, again, the issue of luck, than it was to the, the inherent scholarship of the book. And uh, Kennedy's a military historian at Yale, and this year he's just come out with another book. This one is slightly narrower focus about the Second World War. And what's interesting from our point of view is that he cites Wikipedia in, uh, in this book. And I counted in the back, uh, he's listed 11 separate Wikipedia pages in his, uh, in his bibliography. And he, he describes things as being, uh, a very, there's one page he describes having a best uh, footnotes and further reading on any, of anything on that topic he's seen. He describes other pages as very thorough, uh, other pages as excellent. And in an interview he said that, that some of these Wikipedia pages were simply the best material he could find on the topic. Um, so maybe we're seeing a turning point in the, in the citation of digital resources. But we have to admit, if you're a famous best-selling historian from Yale, it's a lot easier to cite Wikipedia in your book than if you're a, a starting researcher trying to make your way as a, a serious uh, academic. But I think it's significant this is happening now. And Wikipedia has had enormous uh, social and cultural impact, but again, uh, we, would, we would not see that if we did citation analysis. We just wouldn't see it. I think one of the great things about Wikipedia is that it makes transparent the pitfalls of reference publishing, because people don't quite trust Wikipedia, and that's an excellent thing. And if they move on to not quite trusting the OED or the Encyclopedia Britannica, and that would be a real social impact that Wikipedia would have had, which I think would be absolutely fantastic. But if you look for academic citations, of course, apart from a few areas like cultural studies, TV and things like that, where you sometimes see YouTube and Wikipedia quoted, you just won't find citations to these. And the IHR have been carrying out benchmarking studies for the last 10 years, iteratively, of historians and their attitudes to digital resources. In the last round, I interviewed a medieval historian, and he said to me, of course, everyone looks at Wikipedia. Uh, this is a professor of medieval history, I should say, but he just wouldn't mention it to anybody else. And that makes it very hard for Wikipedia to measure its own impact. And I hope that with principled historians like Paul Kennedy leading the way, we may be about to see a, a change uh, in attitudes to digital resources, and that in itself should lead to a greater appreciation of impact. So here are my contact details. If you want any of the oh, that was my Wikipedia pages you pointed to, um, anything that I've mentioned that you want links to, then please do let me know.